When we left off, we found ourselves with a handful of leaves that the Buddha had left for us, saying that that's all we need to know. All we need is a handful of a certain kind of knowledge, the practice that comes from that knowledge. To heal ourselves from the fundamental disease of ignorance, of attachment to this, that, and the other as being me or mine. And if you recall, the term selfing was used, suggesting that this is done from breath moment to breath moment. That is, we're, we literally construct, fabricate, create this sense of me and mine. We attach to virtually anything and appropriate it as the materials to convince us that we are such and such. And this illusion is so powerful. We're so powerfully under the influence of ignorance, like being under the influence of alcohol, driving under the ignorance of alcohol. <laughs> For us, it's action under the influence of ignorance. And we're all doing it. We're all taking this, that, and the other to be me and mine. And so the world looks and sounds the way it does. Buddhadasa, who uh, I owe so much of whatever little understanding I have of sunya or emptiness, uh, had a very strong point to make among, he had many strong points to make, but one that uh, I brought back with me and was uh, very inspiring and impressive. Typically in Thailand and probably the same in other Asian countries, but at any rate in Thailand for sure. Uh, sunya or emptiness was thought of as something that lay people shouldn't go near. That's for serious practitioners, that's for the monks, some nuns. But that's much too far away for lay people, much too profound and deep and just completely out of our reach and unrealistic. And Buddha Dasa was constantly trying to demonstrate that uh, Sunya was an extremely practical understanding and that if anyone needed to understand it, it was lay people. Because we're so much in the thick of attachment and fire. Much more than monks and nuns are. And the understanding of Sunya or emptiness is the medicine to cure, to heal us from the disease of attachment, of selfing. He was very hard on the Thai people one time, more than once, but I remember one time, uh, 
his monastery was very famous because he was well known throughout Thailand. In effect, there were two monasteries. One way off in the jungle, which uh, there were people meditating in all the time, and it was what was going on was not so different from what we do here. And then another part of this very large monastery, which was more uh, for the public, and bus load after bus load of tourists would show up. And there was he would he was very patient, gave talks all the time, but uh, he did uh, tease the Thai people a lot. Sometimes it seemed to me harder than teasing because he knows them better than I do. Mostly the Thai people from the cities, from Bangkok. Not the, the villagers tended to be uh, simple, pious, and he didn't seem to want to go after them. But whenever a busload of, <laughs> of city Thai Buddhists with a capital B would show up, it would not be unusual for him to say he would start off and try to draw them out and when they just didn't seem to have much interest in the practice. They just wanted to get what they call punya, blessings. Just show up, come and... Uh, in other words, he was very much against superstition. And I remember one time a, a whole bunch of, uh, a few busloads, it was one tour, it was about three or four buses. And he just, after, after experiencing an inability to get through, he just said, Oh, I understand. You just couldn't find a you couldn't find a men's and a ladies' room. That's why you stopped off here. <laughs> Before we uh, go into it, I'd like to suggest a, a little framework uh, that might be helpful, and then try to be, in the time remaining. Uh, as concrete as I can to try to at least begin to give you a sense that this is something quite practical. It's also not the easiest thing to understand even intellectually, let alone experientially. Uh, what the Buddha is saying is that each and every one of us, we humans, have this disease and most of us don't know it. So because we don't know it, we're not doing anything to cure ourselves. So step number one has to be some beginning of an inkling that when we grasp onto things, when we crave and grasp onto things, uh, that the consequence of that is to get hurt. And as we begin to see that in our own life, little by little, <clears throat> we loosen our grip. If we don't loosen our grip, we continue to suffer. And the teachings are an attempt to help us see what we're doing. And it takes a keen interest to be able to see through this one because the power of it is so great. It's very mystifying, very convincing. And it helps if we can begin to see it in ourselves and to sincerely understand that we are the problem. Uh, Jack Cornfield told me a story which might be relevant now. Uh, he said many years ago, do you know these protective cords that Tibetan lamas give out? Uh, they're called you know, protective cords and some of you are wearing them and uh, usually you wear it around your neck or around your wrist. They're blessed and then you wear them. 
And so this one Lama was giving Jack one, and Jack uh, said, um, uh, what are these protective cords uh, for? I mean, what are they supposed to protect us from? It was just an innocent question, and the Lama kind of was taken aback and said, from yourself, of course. <laughs> Let me give you a few, uh, just say a few things and then we'll come back to it, but they're kind of challenges in a way. I'm going to give you a few hints, but maybe we'll go into it more deeply at the end, maybe not, I don't know. But even if we don't have time, uh, I hope that it's a little clearer. These are things th uh, that are said in, in Dharma circles. Have any of you heard, the lights are on, but there's nobody home? What is that all about? Actually, it should be the lights are on because nobody is home. Do you get it? No, okay. <laughs> it has nothing to do with electricity, believe me. Okay. Something else in the same family. It's only when we are completely and totally absent that we can find ourselves truly in presence. Or another one, if we can die before we die, then when we die, we don't have to be afraid of death. The big death, it's, it's the great death, it's often talked about in Zen. It's not of the body. And you, you all see it now. The empty house is... Okay. The absence being necessary for presence, we'll definitely go into that one about your yogi jobs, because I've been asking all of you in the groups about that all week, and perhaps some of you are wondering, why, what is this? obsession I have with yogi jobs. <clears throat> In the Heart Sutra, we hear it said that Avalokiteshvara, a great bodhisattva, frees himself from all fear when he sees that the five in Sanskrit skandhas and the Pali khandhas, the five aggregates, are all empty. And this is talked about in a somewhat different way in, um, in Vipassana as well. Uh, the five aggregates are usually referred to as upadana khanda, the five aggregates of clinging. It's uh, one phrase. The five aggregates would be what we think of as the mind-body process. It would be the body itself. It would be feelings that we've talked a bit about throughout the week. It would be perceptions. It would be mental formations and consciousness, 
just think of the entire mind-body process. And the problem in Buddhism, for example, the Buddha says that the most profound meaning of dukkha or suffering is to begin to see that attachment to the five khandhas as being me or mine, as being self, is suffering. That's the high point, if we can see that. And that's what real vipassana is about. There are many things that help bring us to the point where we can see that and do that. It's seeing that the mind-body process is empty of self. And to the degree to which we don't see that, not merely intellectually, but see it from moment to moment in our own life, we, we must suffer. Perhaps it will help to go through those a little bit. The first uh, kanda, first aggregate, is uh, uh, mainly what we think of as the physical body, although it can be much broader than that for the moment. Uh, let it be the body. Uh, if we attach to the body as being me or mine, that's what I mean by selfing. We turn the body into self. There's a basic confusion. Now, from a, a common sense point of view, it may seem like, well, that is true, isn't it? I mean, I, it's my body, for goodness sakes. What is he talking about? But in a profound sense, when the mind gets very clear, what you can see is that there is a body. But notions that it is my body are just that. They're notions, which are very powerful and very con uh, convincing. We attach to anything as self. Many, many things, even further removed than our body. I saw a fight once. A car came turning out and nicked another car's fender, scratched it, and they both jumped out and uh, they were screaming at each other and one person started screaming, uh, uh, you, you scratched my fender. <laughs> And I, and I th thought, then it suddenly hit me, it isn't his fender, it's his car's fender, isn't it? <laughs> no. That fight was fueled. He was getting, you know, they almost threw punches there being held back, was fueled by ignorance. He, his, you know, we talk, I'm out of gas. You're not out of <laughs> You're not out of gas, the car is out of gas. <laughs> My clutch is out. My transmission is gone. My wipers don't work. <laughs> if we can be that goofy with our cars, can you imagine what happens when we get to the body itself? So there's a very, very deep attachment to the body as being my body, I am this body. And if we go into the first one more deeply, you'll see the others are, are very similar. This one is really obvious. So much energy, time, and money, perhaps in all societies, but certainly in our own, is spent on the body. Uh, in fact, rupa, one of the meanings of rupa, is fragile and easily breakable. We all know from our bodies 
that certain functions wear out, certain fu- capacities of the body uh, are damaged, we, we don't have full functioning, we age, we gain weight, we lose certain um, capacities altogether or they're weakened dramatically. There are huge industries, enormous, massive industries. For all I know, most of industry seems to have to do with uh, dressing the body and, and oiling it and, uh, and grooming it. Uh, endless. I, live, I like health food stores myself, but sometime go in and look at it from this point of view. It's just every conceivable thing, and it's growing all the time. Products are multiplying overnight about all the different ways to uh, present that body, groom that body, get those thighs to be a certain way, and the skin to be a certain way, and uh, the breath to be a certain way. And there's almost there's no part neglected. Something. Uh, and then if you go out of the health food store or any food store really. But health food stores have a lot of adjunct products now. Pharmacies and uh, clothers and advertising itself. The weight loss programs and fashion and everything. I mean, there's an incredible obsession with the body. Um, seeing the body as empty doesn't mean that we neglect the body whether we consider it trivial. In fact, it might be that you can even take better care of the body and have, certainly have less suffering. Krishnamurti had a very, to me, useful image for our relationship to the body. He would say, imagine that you're a cavalry officer. For those of you who are peace generation, that means someone who uh, rode on a horse and killed. <laughs> Imagine, imagine that you're a cavalry officer. Your life depends on your horse. Now, you are not your horse, but you better take good care of that horse if you want to go into combat and have a, a chance of staying alive. So it doesn't follow if we begin to see, that if we begin to see the body in a more clear and objective way and let go of so much um, delusion and attachment to the body and the suffering that comes along with that, it doesn't follow that we don't appreciate the body, that we don't care for it, that we don't use it. It has no negative consequences necessarily for athletics or sex or even attractiveness or wearing nice clothes. That's not what causes the suffering. It's the relationship to the body that causes the suffering. So we say, if, uh, let's say if you look at the body and the Buddha says uh, life is suffering because it's uh, birth, sickness, old age, and dying, there's no question that as the body goes through transformations, there's pain. And as mentioned, sometimes loss of function. But torment is something that's extra. That's because of our relationship to the aging process, not because of the aging itself. This is a very important point. Um, think back to the last time when the person wanted to give me a, a deduction and in effect called me pop, you know, you can have a deduction. Uh, why was he so concerned about 
implying that I was a senior citizen. And why did it come as a shock to me when I was referred to as a senior citizen? Because we're very touchy about that. Somehow to get older is bad. Hey, pop. Like sometimes young kids are very arrogant and disrespectful towards older people as if they're never going to be there. Where all it is is a natural process that each and every human being who's ever lived, from Jesus, Buddha, you tell me, his greatest actors, actresses, famous generals, presidents, great intellectuals, scholars, scientists, ordinary people, doesn't matter. No one could get out of that one. Everyone's body got sick, old, and died. Everyone. And there's not very much acceptance of the naturalness of that, it appears. And so we have all kinds of funny things that we do to deny it. When I used to visit my parents in Florida, you would see people who were in their 80s uh, dressed up as if they were uh, going to the high school prom or something. (laughs) Now, if they were really youthful and having a good time, that's fine. I don't think there have to be any rigid rules that people at a certain age, you, have to, you can't wear Bermuda shorts. Sorry, you're too old for that. I don't mean that. It's that it was all external. In fact, when there's genuine youthfulness, freshness of mind, a keen interest in the life process, uh, perhaps it isn't all that important to wear Bermuda shorts. I mean, you can wear them or not wear them. The issue is not Bermuda shorts. So we have to let's start understanding what emptiness is, what attachment is, as we move through these these uh, khandas. There are a number of questions that I got about emptiness, and that was a little confusing. Let me give you an example, a few examples that don't have to do with um, persons, and then we'll get back to the five khandas that might help us uh, understand it, understand them. Think of a wave. Let's say uh, you see a wave in the ocean. Can you visualize one right now? Uh, It has a certain reality. You can even surf on it, right? People do it all the time. So if I should say that wave is empty, it doesn't mean that the wave doesn't exist. But what I'm saying is, all that the wave is, and this is just an, an image, don't take it totally literally for when we get to ourselves. There's water, and then wind comes and blows the water, and then it takes on the form, and we, uh, we create a, a, a special name for that. We call it a wave. But really, all it is is the wind blowing the water. That means that the wave exists, but it's dependent on the conditions. It's an outcome of certain conditions. There have to be water, and there has to be wind. And then when they come together in the right way, we have something which we call a wave, You can ride on it, you can surf on it, you can be knocked to the beach by it, but it falls apart. We're not saying it doesn't exist or it's not there or you're hallucinating, but we are saying it's real but not in quite the way in which we think it is. So that if you could understand that about something like a wave, let's get something a little bit more complicated. Cambridge Insight Meditation Center where I practice, and some of us here uh, practice. In one sense, 
you come there, if you, those of you who have been there know this, but those of you who have not, you just have to, there's a sign when you come there, Cambridge Insight Meditation Center. There's a stone Buddha off to the left. There's a nice garden that gives you a sense, if you've been to Japan, of a certain serenity. You walk inside and uh, it's clean and there are quite a few Buddhas lying down, standing up, walking. There's a meditation hall with meditation mats and cushions. Buddhas in many rooms, there's a walking meditation area, a Dharma hall, a library with many Buddhist books. If you look on the bulletin board, many references to Buddhism one way or another, one form or another. An altar with a bell and a Buddha and some other war trophies that I brought back from Thailand. They're all there. If you come in, this is the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center. Uh, what does it have in common with the wave? A lot. The equivalent of the wind when we get to the mind is ignorance. It, the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center is a place that I, it's so real that I even live there. Okay, so just as you can surf on a wave even though it's empty, you can live at a, at a center even though it's empty. And you practice there, right? And there are many others who practice there. So we use this place. What do you mean it's empty? Well, uh, having seen it prior to becoming Cambridge Insight Meditation Center, I also I read the history of it and I saw what it was like before we did our stagecraft. And it was a, a doctor lived there. It was the first birthing center, in, first and only birthing center in Cambridge. Then it became uh, the home of the doctor. And when his wife died, he married his nurse. Then it, became, uh, it was a, like a private residence. Then they died and their son took it over and it became a rooming house. And he totally neglected it. And when we saw it, there was water pouring through this. Th it was in very, very bad shape. It was a dilapidated, neglected old Victorian house. And then a bunch of us with ideas and skills came together. A lot of different ideas and skills. And we shaped it fashioned it, uh, created it, and in a tremendous amount of work went into it and still does from many people. Money, ideas, craftsmanship, uh, endless really. And we've created something that from a certain point of view is an accomplishment in theater. It's theater arts all the way. It's in the realm of dramaturgy. Because as long as the conditions exist, just as long as the wind exists, to enable that something which we call a wave to be there so that you can surf on it, it's the same here. It was a coming together of uh, people who had done this practice for quite a few years and had interest in it, and some people who had some extra money, and others who had this skill and that skill, and before we knew it, uh, it was put together, and then at this time in the history of the area that this center is situated, there's a growing interest in meditation. So there are a fair number of people who come. It's very active and alive and morale is high and it's a very nice place to be in, at least for me, at least for many people. But it's empty because at some point those conditions, being impermanent, will definitely wither. And as a result, what we know of as the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center will no longer be. It will become something else, a real estate office, four cinemas, something. But it won't be what, what it is.
boy, what a killjoy he is. <laughs> Why doesn't he just enjoy it? And, you know, what does he have to be so deep, for goodness sake? <laughs> I'll tell you why. To protect myself. To attach to it as being a self. See, the, the, the teaching of emptiness applies to phenomena as well as to persons. And they're so closely interrelated. If we create Cambridge Insight Meditation Center and impute a certain solidity to it that it doesn't really have, a certain uh, autonomy, autonomous existence from its own side, that it's kind of just there, it stands on its own, that it's really real, it's much easier to get attached to it and then to get hurt by that attachment, to become incredibly chauvinistic about it, to uh, start judging other approaches, other practice centers, other traditions. Uh, and if anything is said against it, we get angry and hurt. And, because just like with the car, it becomes my center. And what do you mean it's the hall is a little on the small side? That, that's me you're talking about. You're saying I'm on the small side? No, I said the meditation hall is a little small, isn't it? Get out of here. Okay. Now, in my case, having uh, played a major role in starting it, along with a, a number of people, some of whom are here, in a certain sense, it's like having a child. Uh, I'm one of the parents. This child has a number of parents. It's uh, well taken care of. It's not neglected. But the tendency for attachment is very, very powerful. Uh, and all of the problems that come from that. Now, here's, to me, an interesting point. I periodically reflect on this center. I'll look at it. And I'll look at it in somewhat the way in which I just described it to you and have a good laugh. But I enjoy living there. I enjoy teaching and practicing there. I value it. You see, it's not that because I see that it's empty, now it's worthless. Empty doesn't mean worthless. Empty means alive. If something's alive, of course it's constantly changing. Do you remember we mentioned that it grows out of the perception of impermanence? And that if you understand impermanence, you understand emptiness? So it's not a derogatory term, it's just a true term. Everything is empty. If you reflect on it that way, uh, you do deprive yourself, I must admit, of certain sentimental gratification that you can get uh, from just whole hog attaching to it. And then someone says, what a wonderful center you have here, and oh, it's just terrific, can I be a member? And suddenly you're eight feet tall and all puffed up. And... But there's a, something else by seeing through that kind of ignorance, really, false attachment, that takes the mind to the place that the center was built to help us get to. Do you see what I'm getting at? Isn't that more valuable? Rather than having some sentimental fantasy, daydream. I was going to say, you know, BS. It's all, you know, something that's nice in the moment, but has, is, it doesn't have any real substance to it. But the practice with it enables the mind to get to the place that the place that the center was set up to help us get to in the first place, i.e. freedom. Okay, now, can we look at the body in the same way? Can we start to see, because we, we are already attached to the body, CIMC is, so far, has not been much of a problem for me. I enjoy it, and 
I don't know, I, I haven't been fully tested because it's still there. And it, it hasn't been, I mean, I don't know what would happen if someone could say, well, we made a mistake, it's incorrectly zoned and now it can only be a private home or a real estate office. So come back if that happens and I'll let you know how I turn out. So, so far there hasn't been much of a test, but I'm inoculating myself. When it comes to the body, we already have huge, intense, powerful attachments. And it started a long time ago. Can you remember your adolescence? <laughs> With the pimples? With finally being allowed, in my generation, finally being allowed to wear long pants? I don't know, we all have... It's endless, but it doesn't stop. You think, well, when adolescence is over, then I'll be fine. But it doesn't stop there. It just keeps going and going till, you know, uh, till the end. Even in a nursing home, it's going on. I, I go there often, as you know, and I hear what's talked about and how it's talked about. People are lowered into the grave with the same approach, attaching to the body as being me. And as a result, the fate of the body is the person's fate. Totally, there's no separation. Granted, some things happen to the body that are extraordinarily painful, that make life difficult, that even eliminate certain gratification and uh, activities for us, and that compromise us in the eyes of others because of the way we all look at things. But to be liberated, no matter what your relationship to your body or what your condition of the body is, you will have to do it. And you'll have to dig yourself out all of us do, of whatever all these notions are that we have about ourselves built up from how we think people see us because of how we think they see our body and begin to sort out the actuality of how the body is. Really the facts of it from the mental response to it, the way the mind reacts to it, the stories the mind makes up to it. It's all the difference in the world. The Buddha said it's like being hit with two darts. The first dart would be that the body gets hit and there's pain. The second dart is, is uh, when the mind gets hit. So there's a second kind of pain. Someone asked the Buddha about that and he said, the only difference between myself and you is that I only get hit with one dart, but most of you are getting hit with two darts. If my body gets hurt, it hurts me too. But I don't make anything out of that. I know that it's my body that hurts. But when your body gets hurt, there's a second dart, because your mind gets hurt too. Now the liberation that the Buddha is talking about is the liberation, the, the torment, the sorrow, the anguish that is created in the mind and what is being suggested is that it is not hopeless no matter what the condition of your body no matter what your age or weight or shape or you know all these endless things that we attach to and give incredible significance to but you have to be willing to look and you have to be willing to notice it's quite an enjoyable exploration once you get going I've been doing a lot of it it really is. 
and it's very freeing. Now, the body is going to get sick, old, and die no matter what, whether you do the, the exploration or not. But the journey can be a much smoother one if you begin to understand what's happening to you and begin to see how we're all doing it to each other. Aging will be more graceful. There'll be a lot of unnecessary pain that we can let go of. We'll begin to see that there are different joys, different forms of fulfillment at every stage in life. You know, one uh, great yogi, Sri Nishargadat, was asked, what's it like to be an old yogi. <laughs> some, for some of us, that's not an academic question. <laughs> and he laughed and he said, oh, I just see senility coming in day by day, uh, forgetting this and forgetting that, and I see the onset of senility and just let out a huge roar. <laughs> Implying that, you know, maybe there's some place that's deeper than the age of the body. Maybe there's some place to live other than the implications and imagination that we have around the body. Could that be? Corrado, how would you feel if I went five minutes over? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's what is known as a rhetorical question. You better say yes. Sir. Yes. Okay. <laughs> we have a very harmonious relationship. <laughs> I'm kind of, we're not going to be able to go through all the five khandas. There's no time. But I went through the first one. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't matter. See, they're all the same. If you understood the body one, then it's the same with the feeling one. And it's the same, it's the same with the perception one. It's the same with the mental formations one. And it's the same with the consciousness one. We keep turning them into me and mine. We attach to them as being self. And Vipassana is helping us gradually, little by little, to empty the five khandhas of this false notion that it's a self. Okay, when we look at particular events that are coming up, let's say, a uh, let's say a powerful fear that comes up, <coughs> applying what we just said, uh, one way, there are many, really are quite a few approaches to this, but only one that I'd like to mention, which should be familiar to you by now, is if when you're fully attending to that fear, for the moment, let's just say that's part of mental formation, so let's say a, a mind, a mind state. When satipanya is really right there, that means that mindfulness is right there with it, and there's a, a keen looking, a seeing into it. What we see is that there is fear. No one's denying that there, that fear is not there. But as we begin to look at it very, very carefully, now if we're really attentive, if samadhi is strong and we're able to be with it. There is no mere mind. We've prevented the proliferation of something coming in, claiming it, appropriating it. This is my fear. And then it uh, just getting all out of control. And we have a hysterical big problem. So preventive medicine is that pure attention, which catches it right at 
let's say, a feeling, what it feels like. And if you're right there with it, it doesn't go beyond that. And we see that it arises and passes away, and by implication, it, no self. It never got a chance to uh, fabricate itself into a self by the mind, be fabricated into a, an apparent self by the mind. What we're examining is there, are fe- there, there is fear, what we call fear. I don't mean the word. And if we're able to really give it our full attention, we'll find out that it's empty. We find out that it arises and passes away, that it lacks a core, as maybe the first time it's just a wee bit of an inkling. But with a little bit of practice, more and more you begin to see the nature of fear. This is very different than the psychotherapeutic approach or going back to the genesis of why you got it when you were a child, what happened in the schoolyard, and all of that. That's useful too. That's very useful. But here, it's free of content. We're interested in the process because no matter what we see, it's subject to this law. And as you begin to see this law at work, it divests the form of this power to delude us. Yes, there's fear in the mind, no question about that. Fear is there. And less and less do we grasp onto it and build it, use it as materials to create a sense of self, that I am afraid, this is my fear, and then once that goes, we're off and running. Okay, now, why was I emphasizing really take your yogi job as part of the practice? To me, it's very, it's very uh, solid Dharma teaching. There's nothing special about that. But what was emphasized was keep noticing how you're separate from your work, those of you who try to do it. And sometimes it's suggested, can you be one with what you're doing? Be one with vacuuming. What that means is, it's not that you crawl inside the vacuum cleaner, <laughs> but any sense of separation from the, from the activity of vacuuming is seen by, by satipanya, and it falls away, and uh, there's a surrender to the vacuuming, there's a handing over to the vacuuming. And what you have can be called doerless doing, doerless doing. The vacuuming is getting done, but there's no one who's doing it. It's not mystical in the sense, well then, who's, how did the rug get clean? <laughs> But can you see that not only is there more effectiveness, because that means the mind is clear. When the mind is fully doing vacuuming, it isn't encumbered with all kinds of notions about uh, why do I have to be doing vacuuming? I'm uh, chairman of the board of my corporation and uh, I wind up uh, cleaning the toilet and all the thoughts that might come out of that. Or trying to get it over with because you have bigger and better things to do than this silly stuff. Whatever it is, whatever the distractions are. When those fall away, by, because they're seen, what's left is a clear mind. We call that doerless doing. So it's a practice, but it's also what enlightenment is. It's also what enlightenment is. Lin Chi, who I mentioned earlier today, to him the, 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 the deepest development in our, in our practice, it's another way of talking about what we call uh, nirvana is to become a true person of no rank. All the rank uh, is all made up in the mind. Now, a true person of no rank 
is not, is not superior to anyone, doesn't feel superior to anyone, doesn't feel inferior to anyone, and doesn't even feel equal to anyone. That's the big one in Cambridge. Everyone is struggling to make sure that everyone feels that we're all equal. But we're all caught in that game still. To be free of even being equal is the real thing. That means you just are. And we take each other as people. We're not still caught up in that, some schema about how, how we are with each other. That means you can have authority. You can be chairman of the board and carry out your job. But inside, you're not imprisoned by notions about who you are in terms of everyone else. So there's one question. Uh, well, it's more of a, an understanding of uh, a question about what is enlightenment and a, uh, a sage from the past answers, it's eating rice and drinking tea. Just eating rice and drinking tea. What that means is uh, there's no self-conscious entity which thinks of itself as being this, that, and the other that's eating the rice and that's drinking the tea. There's just the rice is being eaten. There's just the tea that's being uh, sipped. And you're more fully alive when you're absent than you're fully present. When you're completely absent, that means when the ego, ego-centeredness, self-conceit is absent, then there's full presence. We're never more alive. Some of your questions, well, if we're not me and mine, wouldn't that be some kind of passive nerd, you know, just sort of everyone steps all over you and you don't do any social action? You know, everything is empty? No, if you want to do social action, by all means. What, what it, this is not prescribing the particular way in which you do things. It's not passive. You can be passive or active. That's not the issue. It's the internal state. So that if you, you can be an extremely active person, but inside there's nobody who's doing it. Can you see the advantages of that? It's another way of saying the person is very clear. It's another way of saying the person is not victimized by greed, hatred, and confusion. And if you're worried about being ineffective, if you should let go of this precious me or mine, probably Jesus and the Buddha did it. Were they ineffective? Can we have a moment's silence, please? This talk was given by Larry Rosenberg at Insight Meditation Society on July 16, 1993. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed 